0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to Peoples and Things, where we explore human life with technology. I'm Lee Vinsel. You know... A great professional pleasure in academia, but probably other professions too, is to sit back, survey your field, and say, we've got too much of this and not enough of that. Whatever this and that are. It's a deeply satisfying activity. It has a wonderful mouthfeel, kind of like roll it around your palate, and it has a nice feeling in your belly too. It's Just great. Like in science and technology studies, we have way, 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 way too much work on emerging technologies, including technologies that are little more than promissory notes. This leads to superficial work because it turns out to be quite difficult to study things that do not actually exist in the world. L. M. A-O. What else do we have too much of? Let's see. Hold on. You're going to work on AI? No way. I'm so shocked that I'm having trouble catching my breath. I just can't believe it. You're a pathbreaker. A truly original thinker. What do we not have enough research on? Oh man, the list is so long. Septic tanks? Trailer parks, elevators and pest control in public housing, infrastructure in small towns with declining populations. What else? Whew, I could go on all day. Oh, here's another big one place. These days, we do not have so many studies that focus on how technological and industrial change affect a place and the beings that inhabit it. Not just humans, but you know. All the critters. Oh, but you're in luck. In walks Christina Dunbar Hester's recent book, Oil Beach, How Toxic Infrastructure Threatens Life in the Port of Los Angeles and Beyond. Dunbar Hester's book takes a multi-species approach to examine how petroleum production and refining and the heavy industrialization required for one of the most active ports on the planet has affected a wide variety of animals, yes, including us humans. The book is a wonderful examination of place, a place Dunbar Hester moved to several years ago when she became a professor at the University of Southern California's Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism. For my money, Dunbar Hester is one of the most important scholars working in science and technology studies today. Oil Beach is her third book, and I have found much to appreciate In her other two books, especially her first one, Low Power to the People, Pirates, Protest, and Politics in FM Radioactivism, which is one of my favorites and which we discuss a bit in the interview. And I was overjoyed when I learned she was turning from her last book, Hacking Diversity, which was on the digital culture of the open technology movement, to the study of rusty, creaky, and leaking petroleum and port infrastructure. ah. Moreover, Dunbar Esther cannot be that much older than me if she is, yet for a long time, I have looked up to her as a scholar. And she has also been helpful to me in that she is not afraid to tell me when she thinks I am barking up the wrong tree, which is, hey, the kind of feedback one needs in life. I am absolutely certain Christina thinks I am sometimes a jerk, which let's be real folks, is simply true and she lets me know it, which helps. It's for all these reasons, scholarly, professional, and personal, that it was such a pleasure to finally have Christina Dunbar Hester on Peoples and Things. I had a wonderful time. I hope you do too. Hey, get excited. so much for taking the time to talk to me today thank you lee it's great to be here great to see you so oil beach is a neat book when you explain it to strangers if you ever have to do that these days what do you say it's about and what were you trying to do with it
1: well i guess i can quickly tell if people are on the wavelength of the book or need to sort of be oriented at first principles Um, for people who have familiarity with LA at all, which I really didn't when I moved here for work almost eight years ago. Um, It's about the infrastructure that's kind of hiding in plain sight in Los Angeles, which is not particularly part of its public image or, Mm -hmm. um, again, sort of most popular representations. And that is both the uh, oil history here. Uh, the petroleum extraction um, and also refining uh, and also the port shipping, which uh, did get into the headlines a bit with supply chain snarls uh, during the early stages of the pandemic. Um, But a lot of the time, these are just completely kind of obscured and invisibilized in Mm -hmm. uh, popular understanding of this region. And even for people who live here, uh, you know they'll know about it, but it's not something that's talked about all that much. So the book is kind of trying to surface and I don't know denaturalize the naturalized invisibility of of those topics. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's a it's an academic book, but it's attempting to you know sort of cross over and, and appeal to uh, wider audiences than just narrow disciplinary ones. So
0: that's cool and. Um... For folks who don't know much about this history or like what's going on now is how much refining and extraction is going? Is this still is it mostly like a historical burden kind of thing or is there still a lot of that going on?
1: Yeah, so both Um, the majority of the coastal oil has been extracted and new permits are granted rarely uh, on the coast. So California's Less of an oil producer than it used to be, Um, although there is still fracking for uh, oil and gas inland, um, not visible on the coast. California is really prominent, though, for, uh, you know, refining and just, you know, being reliant on Mm -hmm. petroleum. Uh, And so like Los Angeles County is now moving to to ban new extraction and to um, enforce setbacks, uh, so that oil extraction infrastructure isn't like right on top of homes, schools, playgrounds, churches. Mm-hmm. You might think that that wouldn't be possible, but it is. Uh, but this is sort of rapidly turning into, um, I would say also a legacy problem, um, where there's old infrastructure, you know, that's maybe decommissioned, but maybe arguably not safe to be around if it's not being, you know, inspected and, and sort of, it's decommissioning being maintained, something I know you know a lot about. Um, And so even as extraction has diminished, there is this, you know, sort of ghost infrastructure really present everywhere. Uh, And near where I live, for instance, there are wells that you can see that actually, at, at first glance, you can't tell if they're completely decommissioned or if they're just like pumping oil really, really slowly um, because they're like almost completely still, uh, but they're not, they haven't been dismantled. And then there, if you actually look at a geologic survey map of the energy infrastructure, you can see that there were a lot of wells that have been decommissioned uh, that again, probably, you know, technocrats know about more than residents, Mm -hmm. Um, but it's really, really sort of present and visible, uh, in a lot of different places.
0: Yeah. So one of the things I like to do on this show is kind of give people a sense of, you know, the listeners, a sense of scholars as human beings, uh, with stories about how they got into stuff. And, uh, so I wanted to give people a kind of, this is your third book. And I kind of wanted to give people a sense of your arc and, uh, you got your PhD in the science and technology studies department at Cornell. Who did you work with there? I mean, who, was, who were your main folks?
1: Um, my committee was chaired by Ron Klein, who's a mm-hmm. his, uh, historian of engineering and is retired or retiring now. Um, and then also Trevor Pinch, who is obviously as a you know, cast along shadow and, and departed us a little over a year ago. Um, And Mike Lynch. um, And so those are both, uh, you know, qualitative sociologists of science and technology. And then lastly, Dominic Boyer, who's an anthropologist, uh, who was at Cornell uh, Hmm. during those years. Uh, And so, yeah, um, we've talked about this a little bit in the past, my advisor being historian and me being more of uh, an ethnographer, you know, led to conversations that were often sort of probing those similarities and differences. And and Mm -hmm. he would always say, you know, I'm going to let the people who do ethnographic work keep you honest methodologically. And then we would just sort of talk about, you know, context and interpretation, uh, which were goals for both. And so actually oil beach is a recent historical work, which I was approached with some trepidation and then just decided, well, you know, I'm going to go for it. Uh, But yeah, for a variety of reasons, it's, it's, not ethnographic and immersive in sort of active communities of people the way the ear- earlier two books were.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so your dissertation and your first book, were, uh, which you know, I love your first book. It's like maybe my favorite first book of our generation of STS scholars, but they were focused on low-powered FM radio activism. So the book's called Low Power to the People, Pirates, Protest, and Politics in FM Radio Activism. So. How did you get onto that? I mean, what was going on that you were like, this is what I want to look into?
1: Well, as usual, it's a sort of, um, it wasn't a, a very linear path, shall we say. Mm-hmm. Um, I had an undergrad background in history and sociology of science topics and it, also urban studies. Um, and when I was thinking about going back to grad school, I was really interested in the sort of, this is the late 90s um i don't know efflorescence of independent media projects mm-hmm. and and claims about sort of democratic media and being the media uh, a lot of this was getting very intense in the years right after the 1996 telecommunications act that really yeah. consolidated um radio and broadcasting and you know was meant to kind of respond to this burgeoning technology the you know internet mm-hmm. um and so I, I was interested in, in those sort of claims about, you know, democratic media and access to technology, but I really didn't know what I was doing very much at all and approached uh, mentors from undergrad who said, well, that sounds interesting, but it sounds like communication and media and we don't know anything about that and we'll write you letters, but good luck. And so I applied to a handful of mostly communication and media studies and some hmm. cultural studies programs. So I, I kind of thought I wasn't doing STS work. There wasn't as much um, sort of cross-pollination between STS and uh, common media as there is now. Like now that's not a remarkable yeah. intersection. But at that right. time, I think it kind of was. Yeah. Um, and part of how I wound up ultimately picking Cornell was they actually said, well, you know, to be honest, we don't really have many people doing work like this, but it sounds interesting and, you know, we'll help you explore it or figure it out if it's what what you wind up doing. And I thought that was actually a really, you know, generous attitude and, you know, realistic, not overselling it. Um, But, you know, I I think I had, I had a knowledge that lenses of both, you know, common media studies and STS or an intuitive sense that those would, would all be useful, but I wasn't really sure you know, which end of the telescope I'd be looking at, out, out of primarily. Yeah. Um, and, but I didn't have any plan to write about, you know, low power radio or anything that came a bit later oh. uh, after I had done some coursework and was sort of nosing around for a research project um, that I th- ultimately became the dissertation, but it was actually just a kind of summer practicum when I initiated oh. it. Um, and I thought I was, looking at kind of, I don't know, imaginaries and practical realities, comparing uh, web broadcasting and, or webcasting or whatever you want to call it, and FM broadcasting by a small project of the Philadelphia Independent Media Center. And so I went down to study that, and then in classic sort of anthropological ethnographic encounter... um, what happened was the group, right when I arrived, had had this big internal fight and mm-hmm. meltdown. And I wasn't actually welcome to do what I thought I was going to do because it was sort of sensitive and people were not, nothing to do with me, just emotions were running high. And so I kind of hung back in a mode where I wasn't, you know, having to plead for access with people who were, you know, in a sort of raw state emotionally. And that led to, the tinkering group um that is you know that activity is prominent in that uh book where people were building radio hardware and you know viewing that as a sort of radical democratic emancipatory and even sort of feminist practice yeah uh and so um ultimately i think you know, you know, hindsight is you know 2020 maybe but also biased you know I think what I wound up doing was more interesting than I what I had set out to do mm-hmm. uh, and so I often tell students this you know it's okay if your yeah. intentions you know go go awry a bit um, you know negotiating access with live humans is something that you know has to be done and re upped and renegotiated and you know consent has to be given um totally. and and so that that's what wound up happening so hacking diversity was this distributed phenomenon and i was you know trying to to capture something that was happening um in a lot of different spaces and places and um and that was an analytic choice but it also meant that with some exceptions um i didn't have a sort of deeper rapport with with folks yeah. and Everything about that just made me feel a little bit, you know, I, I just needed a break from doing that again. And then I moved. Yeah. So I was once again, in a setting where I didn't have deep ties, and it it felt, you know, kind of pushing it with being, you know, too extractive, uh, to try to like, set up shop with ethnographic work right away. And I felt, as I said, like, you know, the sort of how, how I would be in relation with
0: yeah know,
1: quote research subjects. Um, you know, I just wasn't ready to sort of start that up again for, for it's myself like, and for others.
0: Yeah. Go like ahead. Burnt out a good description. Is that, was that the feeling or like.
1: It, it was burnt out and it was also. Um, it just, yeah. It, that book was not the easiest for me to write yeah because of some of that stuff yeah. uh, because of you know, moving jobs and locales very late on the tenure track. And so, yeah. you know, if, if I'm being completely candid, you know, that book had to come out and yeah. some of the feelings in, in the research were hard and some of the feelings about the production of the book were not the easiest. And it, it, it just, I needed a, yeah. to recharge some and, you know, personally and intellectually. Uh, and so Oil Beach really sort of came out of that where I was mm-hmm. just like, now I have tenure. Now I need a palate cleanser. Now I need to like give myself and other humans a break from, you know, scrutinizing their utterances. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, <good. laughs> and so, um, and I think I had at that point been, you know, there was a critical mass of, you know, multi-species and, you know, non-human yeah. sorts of things in STS that I hadn't been paying close attention to. Like, you know how it is. I hadn't done a ton, a ton of new reading since my, you know, dissertation and things that, you know, oh kind of, good,
0: yeah,
1: yeah, like <laughs> sort of, were, you know, spurring off of that. And so yeah. I just was like, thrilled to be able to read again. And it yeah, must have been fun. It it was. And yeah, I, I just was in a new place. And I was really, really curious about the environment I found myself in. And so uh, honestly, it's kind of a again, if I'm being candid, it's just a sort of like self-indulgent myself trying to learn about the, uh, you know, environment that I was in as both kind of, you know, natural and industrial history. That was all very new to me. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. That's Um, part
0: of how I think of it too. It's like, you're learning about your surroundings in -hmm. a very like real way.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I was, I was doing that work anyway, and then realized like, Oh, I can turn this into research and, you know, harmonize yeah. that and give myself a break from these, you know, projects about tech and conflict. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <basically.
0: sorry. laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good. And um, so, I mean, say a bit about like, what kind of research did you do this? So this was a shift for you. So like, yeah, what was, you know, what did you do and what was it like making that shift?
1: Uh, I remember having a conversation with you at a, for us, I guess in Boston, or um, I was like expressing a lot of nervousness about, archival and, you know, documentary interpretive work. Um, But yeah, one thing that happened was I had already decided that there might be, you know, kind of like ethnographic encounter in the book a little bit, but I wasn't going to sort of center on uh, people and and negotiate access in that way. Um, There was also just a lot of, um, there were annual reports and financial data and things that I could get to you know, online and through libraries. Uh, so I didn't do physical archives work, uh, but I found a lot, a lot of, again, like kind of gray literature, annual reports and municipal documents and, and kinds of things. And in the course of just reading them to, you know, do a first yeah. pass, uh, you know, what are the, the arcs here and what are the salient developments you know, I think sort of through that, I realized I have, you know, enough here to start, you know, writing with this empirical basis. Uh, and then the other thing I did do was a lot of newspaper searching. Like, mm-hmm. so I have media sources, um, you know, both uh, older historical and and newer, which is another thing that sort of does tie back to other work. Like I really realized partway through this book how much we're losing with the loss of local media. Mm -hmm. Like it wouldn't have been possible to, to write this kind of history uh, without that kind of, you know, there's some very, very local, very, very idiosyncratic, you know, kind of this happened with the local penguin at the aquarium kind of thing. (laughs) Um, And of course some of that's based on press releases, but like, if we don't have that, we're missing just so much, um, Mm -hmm. you know, as, as citizens and as scholars,
0: Anyway, that was a tangent. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> that, but, yeah. It ties back to your first book in some ways. So um, there's, can you just set the scene for us a bit? I mean, what what does this place look like that you're writing about? Like, you know, you know, what's there? And yeah, what are they like? So the
1: ports here, again, they hide in plain sight. They're about 20 miles due south of downtown L.A., And on a clear day from some of the higher points in L.A., you can see some of the cranes, but mostly they're pretty out of sight Mm -hmm. Um, for a lot of. I mean, L.A. doesn't have a single center of gravity, but I would say it's fair to say that for a lot of the region, this is pretty out of sight, except for the people who, you know, in classic infrastructure studies uh, form. It's very foregrounded. Right. Right. Um, if, If you work uh, there or have family members who work there or live along the freeways. It's it's not invisibilized at all. Yeah. Um. But yeah, the the container and petroleum port ports. There's a port complex that's uh, partly administered by the city of Long Beach and partly administered by the city of Los Angeles. But they're physically contiguous, and it's uh, just this one huge smelly smoggy uh industrial site it's just and it's super secured also you can't just like go walk Mm. around on it yeah um i was down there one day for some port pr event and like you take a wrong turn leaving the event and there's like four cops you know oh wow, port, port police coming up and sort of being like, "Are you lost? do you need <laughs> need directions out of here I see. you know, yeah, um, and even just like stopping the car to snap a picture with the cell phone or something they're like really on you, huh, um, and it's really, really big, and uh, yeah, and it's connected to the freeways, and you know so we we think a lot of air pollution in Los Angeles, which again, I know you consulted your book on on cars about some of that um, mm-hmm. history. Um, but we don't think of it as much often as the freight. Uh, but it's actually like passenger cars, because California has bad air and has therefore imposed pretty strict mm-hmm. standards on uh, the engines and pas- passenger cars that then the rest of the country uh, has too, because it's the same market. Diesel has gotten a big pass. And so the oh. trucks are spewing all this really, you know, nasty, bilious, uh, exhaust and the cargo ships too, like they're coming into Harbor and, and again, the regulations are changing some, they're not supposed to be burning the dirtiest fuel. Well, anymore at all right now, but also they're not supposed to be burning the dirtiest fuel if they're in, in the Harbor, uh, and they're supposed to plug into shore power, but overall, like it just, it's created this really, really large pollution burden for Mm -hmm. the entire region, Mm -hmm. and not just LA, but extending inland uh, where there's distribution infrastructure. Uh, And so on the one hand, you have this just like hyper-industrial, you know, kind of industrial sublime, noxious, you know, cement and, you know, oil refineries and, you know, sort of steel and flame, Mm -hmm. and it smells like sulfur. And it's, you know, kind of going as far as the eye can see. And then you also have this uh biodiversity, which also a lot of people I, I've had people approach me since the book came out and say, you know, I had no idea. Uh, but this is an area because of marine life and um bird life uh and plant life, it's it's regarded as like a really important wildlife corridor. Huh. Uh and yeah. so then since so the, the arc of the book is basically the last half century. So like the modern environmental movement to the present and Mm -hmm. the kind of uneasy uh, juxtaposition of uh, environmental regulations on this site that's super important for, for uh, containers and other kinds of goods and, and oil trade Mm -hmm. and movement Um, and sort of ultimately arguing that rather than being in conflict, you know, they kind of, support each other like the regulations uh to you know protect wildlife or whatever you know wind up getting kind of subsumed into the industrial mandate of the place um but it's to me it's as you can tell from my again babbling it's this really really fascinating rich uh sort of multi-layered place uh where you can see all these you know kind of extreme contradictions at once so i yeah maybe it's provincial but i think it's like really interesting
0: Yeah, I. So you talk uh, in in the in the intro, and it frames you know the structure of your book is that you're you're drawing on this kind of multi-species perspective that's developed in uh, yeah STS but other literatures too in the last couple decades. So was that I mean did you know really quickly when you were starting to work on this project that you were going to go that route and kind of a kind of multi-species perspective or did that develop as you were going along or um some of
1: column a some of column b and also i would also say at the end of the day the book is really influenced by that work but it's not actually taking those sort of experiments as far as a lot of other scholars do like it's actually still at the end of the day a book about human activity
0: yeah 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 but it's sort
1: of enfolding um, yeah. And and relying on you know we've all like, STS 1.0. You know we all have read Haraway and you know Latour and these are you know imprints that influence and influence us in in conscious and in unconscious ways, um, and obviously I think for many people, but myself included, you know, mushroom at the end of the world is sort of a touchstone, mm-hmm. um, but also because it's about you know, economy too. Right. So like when I was writing the book proposal for this, I think the works that I said were not similar, but you know, that I was resting on included like nature's metropolis and the mushroom at the end of the world. And so it's, Hmm. you know, multi-species political, political economy, nature, um, all sort of together. And then my attempt at history. Um, But yeah, it was it was a chance to really foreground literatures that, you know, had some of which again are kind of foundational, and I had maybe read but not worked in, and then update my own knowledge with, uh, you know, a lot of things that have come since. I felt fortunate to enter the conversation when I did because I also feel like something that's been really important and coming out and work like in STS. you know, Kim Talbert and Zakia Jackson, um, and also work in geography, for instance, you know, really centering how, how race is Mm -hmm. central in, uh, thinking about, you know, human ordering, um, and Euro, Euro Euro-American, you know, sort of Western ordering and, and even asking multi-species questions, um, you know, implicates those categories. Uh, and so, you know, I was able to kind of I think, think better on my feet with, with some of that, because of course the whole, you know, all of the United States, but LA is a very, very glaring, uh, you know, sort of case of, a you know, sort of racial order in the landscape and the yeah. urban, urban development. So mm-hmm. that's, um, something I feel fortunate to have been able to, to sort of think with those newer literatures too.
0: Yeah, that's great so you your book is organized around um, four different life forms, and so they are birds, bananas, sea otters, and cetaceans, which, which is an order that includes whales and dolphins and porpoises. so how do you come to choose these four i mean how wh-
1: Well, um, some of it is again a sort of artifact of method mm-hmm. and relying on News articles meant a foregrounding of things that get written about in press, which is often things that are sort of you know, charismatic or presented and constructed as charismatic. Um, originally, those chapters were a little more grouped around sort of analytics. It was going to be like life in captivity, life as commodity. I can't remember the others. Um, and, and that's sort of in there still. Uh, but then I just wound up saying, you know what, I'm just going to do these four charismatic life forms. So there are advantages and disadvantages to doing that. A different book about a very, very similar set of topics could certainly Mm -hmm. foreground much less charismatic life forms. And Mm -hmm. sometimes I think maybe there will be like a sequel that addresses some of that. Uh, certainly if I'd like embedded myself with scientists and done an ethnographic project, it probably would have been more like. We're trying to reintroduce this endangered species of abalone or something, you know, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm, things that are mm-hmm. not without charisma, but not as sort of I don't yeah. know, telegenic or something as these <laughs> other um, creatures. And then bananas, of course, don't seem like they fit with the others because they're not part of, you know, the native inhabitants uh, of the landscape. Uh, but that was actually important for the argument of the book: is to sort of look at the arc of this um, species that had been, you know, introduced and brought through the ports at a very large volume for nearly an entire century, uh, to to sort of show some of the arc of um, labor and also just of shipping volume um, mm-hmm. in in the site. Uh, but that also allowed me to, you know, all of these. Animals, I guess, with the exception of otters that do live their lives you know pretty close to the place that they are from, you know there' are these it's a port right, so there's comings and goings and doings yeah. and froings from from very distant places uh in both again the sort of behavior of wildlife uh but also in this commodity, and so it allowed me to kind of bring into focus uh a central claim which is you know, what's happening here is a highly local and particular story, but it's, it's part of global, you know, planetary systems and, you know, trade networks uh, and, and things like that. So yeah, it's kind of going on in
0: all of those chapters. Mm-hmm. So um, what you, you also, you have this kind of infrastructural vitalism concept that you, that you play with. So tell us a bit about that and why you found it useful to think in these terms of vitalism.
1: I don't know whether to start big or start small and telescope in or out, but you know we we know that we're in a pretty perilous moment, you know, with planetary heating and you know world systems getting potentially, you know, very out of whack, which has of course, been building for centuries, but mm-hmm. is you know, really intensifying in recent decades. Um, and so while it is, on the one hand, I think, unfashionable and incorrect to make really simplistic appeals to sort of life or nature or something. Uh, On the other hand, we are, you know, in different ways implicated in a pretty existential struggle, I think. Um, And and this court site... You know, the most even handed thing I could say about it is still that it's like this really, really deadly place, you know, really lethal, really death dealing, really sort of multiplicative of of harm via multiple systems, including petroleum, including, you know, extractive uh, sort of volume of goods movement and including the U.S. military, which we haven't really talked about, but is another sort of significant, you know, motif or or something in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, sort of the U.S. empire, right? Uh, which is really, again, on display once you train your focus to look at it in, in California. So, you know, I was kind of playing with bigger ideas you know sort of life life and death but I was also because I'm an SPS scholar like trying to not be too essentializing or too um you know crass I guess Mm -hmm. um you know in in thinking about those categories uh but I was also influenced by you know some of the work you know sort of historical ontologies of infrastructure itself um and you know the characterization of um you know, water and electricity and things as you know vital to national security and to sort of urban modernity projects. Um and so again the sort of the vital infrastructure is there mm-hmm. uh in the language. And so and again this is more science studies I guess than some of my earlier work has had the chance to be. Um, and so really thinking about the history of um metaphors between, and here I'm, I'm, I didn't do this work myself, but leaning on uh, work by others, you know, metaphors that transfer ideas about circulation in the body, you know, circulation of blood uh, in particular and circulation of, you know, capital and goods and the Mm -hmm. sort of interpenetration of those ideas and and metaphors. Um, And so I did keep sort of coming back to, you know, there's some sort of, you know, vital system, or you know, p- people believe that there is, and act as if there is. Yeah. Here, uh, and then it's in the la- the language. You know, empirically too. Like we we hear about you know, the lifeblood of the nation, or the freeway as an artery or a spine or something. And so yeah. I was sort of. You know, again, it, it started out kind of playful, and then I became a bit more attempting to attend to it like more seriously and more analytically. But yeah, you know, I, I hope it literally figuratively, I don't know, en- enlivens you know, the-, the telling of the site mm-hmm. uh, to have those sort of flickering distinctions between you know death and life uh, across
0: yeah. The pages. Yeah, it was interesting for me. I mean, one of the kind of things it reminded me a bit of was Thomas Hughes' momentum concept, just because it was like, there is like, I don't know, it's hard to talk about, right? Which is why we end up leaning on terms like vitalism. But it's like, at some point, these systems almost seem to have like a life of their own right because they're we're serving them in all kinds of ways <laughs> they seem so important that like they just like seem like a force and you know we we do all kinds of things to keep them going the thought that they might go away is like impossible to us or something like that you know and so yeah I don't know I, th- I thought it was a neat discussion yeah
1: he was certainly um really influential and exactly that you know that there's even if we don't want to be too fast and loose with this conceptually, there is something there, uh, yeah. about, you know, almost a sort of monstrous, like autopoiesis or something. Yeah. Um, and, and the stirrings of the system are not, you know, I think that's a real question about, you know, who's really in control. Uh, cause again, I can see, I can point to local and state and, you know, sort of regional officials making decisions, but there is something about, um, you know, global flows of capital that are moving and people are reacting to, yeah, you know, so yeah,
0: yeah, and there's those people who have tons of power, I feel like they often feel like things are out of their hands too, and they're just reacting to the world around them and in ways that they would seem as see as far from ideal, so yeah, there's something there um I don't want to I want to leave you know like I don't want to give your everything away in your book because I think it's really nicely written and i want people to check it out but i i do want to just kind of like give reader you know like listeners a sense of like how it moves a bit and i thought we could just like talk about your birds chapter a bit so which is the the first chapter so like what did you find the first body chapter what did what did you why 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 did you start with birds and what did the like looking at the birds and following the birds like allow you to to tell like what did you want to see there
1: um, well, again, this, this maybe starts with the fact that this is the Pacific coast from, you know, Alaska to Patagonia is this migration route. Um, and I'm actually having a hard time answering this as like where it starts. Cause I honestly don't even remember, yeah. but, um, you know, so that, so that that's one thing that's just sort of in the site is that there's historically would be heavy use by migratory birds and some local birds, um, but that have really sort of been crowded out uh, and are now in sort of competition uh, for coast with development, uh, which right in San Pedro Bay where the ports are nestled is the port, but is also, you know, just real estate and commercial use along the coast. So so there's this migratory route on the one hand uh, and on the other hand, there's this infrastructure to respond to spilled oil, yep. uh, which has been coming online for decades. Uh, like I think, quote myself, which I might or might not remember correctly. Um, you know, there, there, there's been discussion in scientific literature about like how to deal with the oil menace of oiled wildlife. You know, since At least a century ago, but again, it's a sort of artifact of the modern environmental movement, um, which in California was galvanized by two big coastal spills uh, in around 1970, 1969 and 1970. Mm -hmm. Um, And the way, you know, industry and environmentalists uh, and the public and, you know, regulators sort of came together to solve this problem here is... Basically, that there's a little bit of revenue set aside uh, from oil transactions to pay for, you know, rehabilitation and remediation of of spills and other threats to wildlife. Uh, So, again, it it actually shows the sort of complementary relationship uh, between, you know, conservation and uh, petroleum. Um, and so, and, and that's also another kind of public charismatic sort of way in, right. We recognize, yeah. you know, that oil birds are this, you know, tragic spectacle. Yes. Um And so, you know, as a, an analyst, you can find, you know, representation of that. And then you can also, you know, go and, you know, pick at it a bit. Uh, you know, sort of really, like, what underlies this, again, kind of naturalized uh, assumption that there will be these discharges of oil, and then that there will be, you know, efforts to remediate it after the fact. Uh, But it's, it's so naturalized that, you know, that both will occur together, that, again, the petroleum industry is actually paying for these, uh, you know, conservation sites and activities. And there's never enough money, and they're always soliciting donations, right? So, both where I live, the aquarium and the oil bird facility are, are actually significantly funded by petroleum and they're soliciting the public and I think a lot of people who you know care about wildlife and care about you know conservation and care about climate change and, and all these things might give money to these entities uh, which are themselves you know acting within the structures and strictures that they find you know I'm not yes. trying to sort of single them out as being you know evil and in fact I don't think that they are, um, but that there's, you know, it's, it's not nakedly apparent uh, that these sort of maybe conflicting mandates run through these institutions and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, conservation impulses. So, Mm -hmm. so anyway, birds illustrates a lot of that,
0: at least I hope it does. So totally. I thought it was, it was very successful. So here's an NPR uh, question type question that I I almost never ask. Um, but I feel like, you know, your, your book is a study of a place, but I think actually you're, you're making arguments that are much bigger than the place you're focusing on. So here's the NPR type question. I almost never asked, what are you, what are you hoping that readers kind of like walk away from this book thinking about and, you know, applying in a much bigger way than just thinking about the ports of LA?
1: I'm glad you asked that because I think you're right. Um, I think I do better research when I'm kind of place, and this book is very about a place. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also, you know, do really hope to be making connections and arguments that are, are bigger than the place because, I don't know, of course, when you're in Southern California, LA is really important, but I'm not actually sure that it is from other you know vantage points. Like I grew up in the upper Midwest and, you know, lived on the East coast for 25 years. And so again, some of this is just my embarrassing California naivete in presented in book form for all to, to see. Um, but really, yeah. Like the part of why this place is so important is 40% of containerized goods that enter the United yeah. States for consumption all across the country come in through here, and our energy system again has all these local effects here. Um, and California is a really big user of of oil and a really you know big economy, but again, all of that is sort of fanning out uh, in you know particular ways and mezzo and, and miniature, you know, all across the U.S. And so yeah. it's really a linchpin for systems uh, that we're all participating in, even if we're nowhere near Southern California. Mm-hmm. And so that, I hope, is something that uh, might, you know, pique people's interest outside of the region. Um, yeah. And as we're sort of looking ahead to, you know, energy transition um, and... You know whatever economic futures are, you know ahead of us, and political futures. How this site is operated really does have, I think, lots and lots of of downstream effects, um, and it is also tied in other ways to, uh, you know, the pipelines that are being you know protested in so-called Canada and, you know, Minnesota and Michigan. Well, right and out and back your
0: yard here in Appalachia, too. Yeah. Absolutely, right?
1: You've got the the gas. Um,
0: Mountain Valley. Mountain Valley,
1: yeah. Right. So those don't literally physically connect to California, I think, because they don't go over the Rockies, but those are the same struggles, right? Yeah. So that, that stuff is all in here. And another really, I think, important thing to think about, uh, which other people in infrastructure studies have been, you know, writing about for a while is these really important points where, you know, a lot of things flow through them are also points of vulnerability, right? They're choke points. Uh, and so, Mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot, a lot invested in the momentum, you know, that keeps them humming and and flowing. Mm -hmm. Uh, but they're also, I think important to surface and think about, you know, points of refusal and whether that's a sort of like, yeah. blockade or something um, or really just a place to say like we can see this system here and and we don't want it to operate this way. And, you know, what are all the steps Mm -hmm. uh, that could be taken to sort of, you know, halt or redirect this, you know, I think it's really, um, Mm -hmm. you know, a moment to be thinking that way. Uh, And so, you know, where the book ends is really thinking about, you know, energy transitions and resistance and honoring this site, as a past, you know, if we can ever get there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what would it what would it actually take to like shut down a refinery in Greater LA or elsewhere and like clean that up? It's yeah. really hard to overstate how toxic it is. Um, and yet, you know, that's something we have to imagine is politically feasible because we have to do it. So
0: Yeah. Uh you're an you're from the upper Midwest. Where you're I'm from, from St. W- Paul. Oh, uh, I don't know. Did we talk? We might maybe we talked about that before. Uh, Yeah, I'm you know, I'm a proud Midwesterner. So that's you're important. Illinois, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I had a raging fight recently with someone whether Iowa was in the upper Midwest or not. Oh, yeah. You, I
0: mean, these are very sensitive topics. <laughs> very they really are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, uh, what's up next for you, man? What, do you have a next project? Or are you going back to do? Are you going to back to doing ethnography, or what's going on?
1: I have a few irons in the fire, or something. Yeah. Um. But again, speaking of burnout, I'm not writing a book for a little while. Like I yeah. gave myself permission to just not do that good for a for while, you. and it feels yeah. good. Uh. So I have again a number of kind of threads that hang off oil beats that are stuff I'm pursuing. Um, and some of them, again, kind of going into the, as I mentioned earlier, sort of anti-charisma, like sites yeah. where wastewater is managed or. Um, yeah, there, there are some sites in the LA Harbor that I didn't even write about at all that are even more sort of obscured and invisibilized that I'm Hmm. still fascinated by both, um, historically and, you know, in the contemporary moment. Uh, I'm also interested in, again, some of the stuff we've touched on a little bit about like governance here. Um, there's a chapter in a book and I can't recall the author right now, which is embarrassing, but that's about like, you know, a, a port as a kind of Almost a unit of legal analysis or something, yeah, like yeah thinking yeah. about uh-huh. all of the regulations that run through it yeah uh and getting a handle on that is actually surprisingly difficult um so I've been thinking some about you know international you know multilateral uh sort of like port pollution kinds of agreements there's a lot of like um energy, no pun intended, behind sort of greening the images of ports right now. And Mm -hmm. sort of that's an international project with international, I think, public relations, Um, you know, some of it coordinated, some of it, maybe not. Uh, So one possibility where I may eventually get is something like a sequel that follows some of these things. And again, probably some of the less charismatic aspects through into, you know, thinking about the governance of the site in, in the present. Uh, but that's really undeveloped and I have a few other small things. There's actually an LPFM antenna in the port of Long Beach. (laughs) So (laughs) I'm not there at all, but I have thought like, that would be a fun, I'm now in the, you know, I guess career stage where I just recycle
0: things. Yeah. yeah. Uh,
1: (laughs) So I thought about like, what if I wrote something about that? And between you, me, and I guess your audience, um, I've been sort of messing around on, on Mastodon since Twitter oh, yeah. exploded, and I may or may not be <laughs> dredging a little of that into public view. Um,
0: right on. Is that, we'll is that where we find you anything. now? Are you on Mastodon primarily these days?
1: I am on Mastodon, and I do not find myself at all yeah, drawn to blue sky nor inclined to stay on Twitter, but that's been an interesting arc. Too And, you know, obviously we've interacted some there over the past few years for obvious reasons when, you know, things were, were set down. Like I didn't use Twitter before the pandemic and then, you know, quickly sang a different tune uh, with it becoming really essential in the early days for both good sort of pandemic information and everything else. So I'm, yeah, so yeah, I'm kind of dabbling in some of those digital media kinds of projects but not not exclusively mainly i'm still working on the harbor and some of the things that aren't in oil beach but
0: that's cool man all those sound like good topics uh i also think it sounds very good for you to take a break so i totally support that uh christina thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today
1: likewise lee yeah thank you
0: you enjoyed this episode of our podcast. You can reach us with questions, comments, and suggestions at LeeVinsel at gmail.com or by following me on Twitter at STS underscore news or on YouTube at People's Things. Our podcast is distributed by the New Books Network, the leading platform for academic podcasts so that you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Peoples and Things, like most things in this world, depends on the work of many people. I wanna thank my brother, Jake Vinsel, for writing the music for the show. I wanna thank my buddy, Juliana Castro, for designing the logos for the podcast. You can check out her work at julianacastro.co. Joe Fort is the producer for the podcast, and Mandy Lamb is the production assistant. This podcast and other Peoples and Things programming are produced in affiliation with Virginia Tech Publishing and supported by the Center for Humanities and the University Libraries at Virginia Tech. For information about other podcasts from Virginia Tech Publishing, visit publishing.vt.edu. For the entire Peoples and Things team, I am Lee Vinsel, and most importantly, I want to thank you for listening. Thanks.